You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. There are many fine regimental histories available on the bookshelves, often written by people with a connection to their regiments, perhaps through their ancestors. What happens, though, when the regiment you want to write about turns out not to be the 20th Maine or the 24th Michigan, one of the great heroic regiments of the war? Is there still a story? There definitely is in the case of the 33rd New Jersey. We'll talk today with John G. Zinn, author of The Mutinous Regiment, the 33rd New Jersey in the Civil War, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Marissa, are you ready yet? I know you can hear me. You are not missing school again. Marissa! You trying to be a nobody or something? Let's go! Alright then. Hit it. I know you can hear this. Hey guys, move closer. That's it. Girl, I am not leaving. Hey. Whatever it takes, don't let your friends drop out. A real friend can make all the difference. Cut that noise, yo! I'm coming! Took you long enough. Thanks for the help, guys. For more ways to help, go to OperationGraduation.com. A public service message from the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio. Bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a brilliant spring day in March 2008. Uh, But, as always, speaking on my own behalf and the guests doing the same, not representing the university, uh, not engaging with the public uh, more than... Well, yes, actually we are, and I bring that up because this past week here at ECU, we have been treated to a series of lectures and seminars on the scholarship of engagement. It's the latest buzzword in the higher education world. Uh, Don't be detached, don't live in your ivory tower, but be engaged with the community and with the public. Uh, For those of us who uh, teach Civil War history, that's all we've done our entire careers. We have a public audience we respond to their concerns, we write books for their edification, we listen to their criticisms. But apparently there are many branches, not just of history, but of academia in general, where uh, people do their work without the slightest concern for what the public thinks. 
And indeed, if you're working on molecular physics, uh, it wouldn't make much sense to stop in at Walmart and ask people uh, what their views are on your research because you're really not going to get much useful feedback. Uh, but somewhere along the line, there's a uh, there's a line in between where people are perhaps writing history that no one reads but other historians, writing literary criticism that no one reads but other English professors, working out economic theories that are too arcane to be used in public policy. Uh, and that's where you get this backlash of uh, uh, education gurus trying to sell a program of scholarship of engagement uh, to us who are up here in our ivory towers not engaged, not speaking to to you, the listening public of Civil War Talk Radio. So I'm of two minds about it. Here we are indeed engaged, uh, as we are every week in this uh, discussion and dialogue, and I always enjoy emails from listeners and uh, suggestions for other guests and enjoy talking to people on the show, uh, whether they are academic uh, members of academia or not. And I've uh, long maintained uh, on this show and elsewhere that, that Historians have an obligation to the public to present their works in understandable form and to address issues that the public is concerned about. On the other hand, as, uh, as our economics chair wrote persuasively uh, to the, the rest of the uh, professoriate here, work in some disciplines, when it's carried on at the cutting edge of those disciplines, is not comprehensible. Uh, by the the ordinary person in the street. Indeed, it's not comprehensible to those of us who are in other departments. I I can't read uh, the papers at the highest levels of of other departments down the hall, philosophy or sociology or economics, and and claim to be able to judge them uh, or even understand them. So how is that work supposed to directly engage the public if, if indeed it's carried on at the frontiers of knowledge, not at the ground level of knowledge. So there are things to be said uh, on this debate, and they will be said at great length here at ECU and other campuses. Uh, But I thought I would share that uh, with you today, a thought about where higher education is going and how some fields don't have the equivalent of Civil War talk radio. They aren't aren't talking with anyone but themselves. But we are here talking with uh, people, and uh, self-promotion being a big part of the show, I will point out I'll continue to talk with folks about Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, published by Pantheon Books, uh, which is available online, bookstores, and your local independent bookstore, and anywhere else. And I'll next be talking about that on Saturday, April 5th, at Fort Branch, North Carolina, which is an historic site on the Roanoke River, which brings up a public service announcement if you should happen to hear this in time for April 5th, 2008. And if you listen to the archives and hear it after that, get ready for April 2009. But on Saturday, April 5th, 2008, there will be the annual Nationwide Park Day, an effort, a volunteer effort to clean and restore Civil War-related battlefields, cemeteries, and shrines, underwritten by a grant from the History Channel, and uh, recognized by the U.S. Department of the Interior. According to the press release, it says 110 historic sites in 24 states will be participating in Park Day, and I will be participating in the one at Fort Branch, North Carolina. If you're in the eastern part of North Carolina, find it on on the web. Uh, Come out and see this remarkable site, one of the few, if not the only, Confederate 
fortifications that still has some of the original ordinance in place overlooking the Roanoke River, now in private ownership but being restored and we'll be out there cleaning up the site and then having lunch and then I will talk a little bit about uh, Civil War topics with, with those who are there. So hope to see you on April 5th at Fort Branch or wherever you are. If there's a Civil War site in your uh, reasonable driving distance, find a way to get out there on April 5th and contribute to the cleanup effort. Well, enough about that. Let's move on with uh, today's subject, which is a regimental history, uh, a book titled The Mutinous Regiment, the 33rd New Jersey in the Civil War. And the author is John G. Zinn. Mr. Zinn, are you there? I am, Jerry. Great. Uh, may I call you John? Uh, please. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you could be on the show. You, uh, you're on the show because you, you did what good authors do when they want to get their books out there. You cold call on people and send them uh, a notice about your book or uh, a review copy. That, that's, uh, I'm, I'm not shy about self-promotion, and I appreciate that you... Uh, took the time to send an email about this book of yours, uh, which I found very interesting. Thank you. Um, it is published, say a word before we get started talking about the substance of it, it's published by McFarland Publishers, and I'm curious how you uh, got in touch with, with your publisher. How did this book come about? Um, I originally was, it was originally going to be published by a small publishing house in New Jersey, and that didn't seem to be moving forward, and so I had permission to, uh, you know, look uh, look elsewhere. And McFarland, I, I started looking for publishers who had published other things about the Civil War, especially regimental type things, and found McFarland and submitted uh, submitted you know me, submitted the things that they asked for, and they immediately wrote back and said that they would like to publish it. Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad that worked out. There's there's a sort of hierarchy, uh, or maybe a taxonomy of, of, of publishers. Uh, the published Civil War books, and, and you know, I, I had a, uh, a Professor Ernest May back at Harvard University, and I haven't told our guests, our listeners, in a long time that I went to Harvard. I, that used to be a staple on this show that I'd get that in every show. So there's a reminder. Yes, I went to Harvard, <laughs> um, and when I was there, one of my advisors was Ernest May, who once told us in class, uh, "They say you can't judge a book by its cover. You don't even need that. You can judge a book by its spine." Okay. Uh, and when you're in a hurry, that does make sense. His point was that you can tell by who published something uh, a little bit about it. And, and McFarland certainly has a, a record of publishing interesting things about the Civil War, sometimes in more detail than a larger house might might choose to publish. Right. But very reputable. Mm -hmm. um, you can go in other directions. There are the academic presses that deal in Civil War books like uh, LSU or, or UNC. Uh, and then there are other directions where we'll, we'll not name names. I'm not sure which organization you were thinking of in New Jersey, um, but there are certainly some small publishers who publish really obscure Civil War stuff, and then there are the ones who verge into the uh, weird political fringe stuff. About right. Well, this was not one of those. That's for it's sure. not one of And I want to assure our readers, McFarland is, is, or listeners, uh, McFarland is certainly not one of those, and this book is not one of those. Uh, and and just to wrap this up, uh, you can, you really can't judge a book by its cover in, in these cases. Not too long ago, uh, we had on the show someone who had published a book, uh, really a self-published book, by uh, the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, self-published books are often at the very bottom. If no one's going to publish your book, there's a reason usually. 
but this book turned out to be wonderful. And right. your book, likewise, uh, very well produced, nice cover, uh, nice photographs, uh, thoroughly researched, and uh, and tells an interesting story. So, to listeners who say, "Why isn't this UNC Press?" Uh, don't don't be put off by McFarland. Go get this book. So, back to to how it originated. What what was your uh, what, what brought you to be interested in this particular regiment? Well, what happened was I'd always had an ambition to research and write a book, and I was, I've always been interested in the Civil War, and also con- interested and concerned about how the history of New Jersey has never been adequately studied and taught. And so I was looking for a topic related to New Jersey and the Civil War, and and when I started looking at that, I had no idea that New Jersey had 40 regiments that had served in the Civil War, or even that four of them had served in the West, and um, looked at what had o- there were some that had already been written about, and was reading a, um, a history of Newark by John Cunningham, and he had a couple of brief references to the 33rd, where he said that they were a storied regiment who had left a trail of glory and savagery throughout the South. And, you know, that certainly sounded like it, re- it merited more, in- hook, more inquiry. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was really what got me started. So you began looking for materials about this regiment at that point? Right. And, of course, I started looking to see if there had been a 19th century history written by, you know, typically those are written by members of the regiment, but there was nothing like that. Then there is a book um, that was written shortly after the Civil War by John Foster called New Jersey and the Rebellion, which is a sort of a history of every New Jersey regiment, but it, they're very fragmented um, histories that don't even come close to telling the whole story. And I moved on from there to the official records, and then you know, then trying to track down whatever correspondence um, journals and that kind of thing did exist from from members of the 33rd. So you you started out then collecting some data, but this was. And this was something you were interested. You said as, as a, a, a personal interest. That this is not your your day job. I'm actually retired from what used to be my day job, but that's correct. It was it was just a, it was a personal interest, not related to my. Prof- um, I had a fi- I was working in the financial field. I see. So you were. Uh, so, so just something you wanted to. Did you have a personal connection, a relative in this regiment? No, not not at all. A lot of times, that's what happens: is that it people is write fun. about write about a regiment that their ancestors served in. But no, none of my ancestors. Um, they're some of them were here before the Civil War, but they were you know too young to have served in it or something like that. Those kind of situations. Well, I think there's. Uh, I, I'm certainly in, in the same position. My uh, great my grandparents immigrated. Uh, in the early 20th century to the United States, so I had no no personal dog in this fight. Uh, but it doesn't stop it from being my history and, and one that, that I find very absorbing. Uh, I'm, I'm always, I, I would say, even a little put off sometimes when people uh, assume that you must have a relative or, or that that's the main reason why people get interested in the war. Is their own connection. There has to be some personal connection. Uh-huh. Them, yeah. but, but the connection can be... Uh, uh, the connection is just as real without being personal, certainly. Absolutely. So you you began collecting the material. Um, well, well, let's let's start with the title of this: the Mutinous Regiment. Um, it's not the Heroic Regiment. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, how, tell ahead. us about how they got got started, how they formed, and, and how this mutiny comes about. Well, basically, the regiment was formed in the summer of 1863. 
um, which I'm sure you and most of, many of your listeners are aware was probably one of the worst possible times to fo- to form a regiment. Um, there, you know, the people who um, the, the the demand for soldiers was escalating dramatically. Uh, the North was, you know, trying to continue to build its forces. Um, at the same time, the people who were going to serve because they had a commitment to the cause were already in the service. So, you know, there weren't as many people available to um, to serve. And, and finally, um, there was no illusion left as to what war was going to be like. I mean, this regiment is formed shortly after uh, Gettysburg, and those casualty lists are very real and, you know, were very real in what they were reported in the, in the, New, in the New Jersey newspaper. So not an attractive time. Um, the federal government responded to that with a combination of a carrot and a stick. The carrot were bounties or cash bonuses paid for enlisting. And they were a significant amount of money at a time when the average factory worker made about $300 a year. The stick was the uh, Conscription Act of 1863, the first draft in American history. And in addition to including, it was a draft based upon population quotas. It also included a commutation fee where you could buy your way out of the draft or you could you could hire a substitute to take your place. Now today, the idea of a fee or a substitute is very controversial. But in those days, what was controversial was the draft, not the uh, not those other things. Those other things were considered to be fairly normal. Now, people said the the commutation fee, the three, paying three hundred dollars, which is as you say a year's salary uh, for a blue collar worker, is is turning us into the the rich man's war, poor man's fight. Scenario is that accurate? That's certainly what the what the attitude would be today. But while it was you know it was talked about in those days, it was it was not uh, not as controversial as this whole concept of the draft. The draft was just in in New Jersey and I think also in New York looked on as just uh, you know this violation of personal freedom or something like that. Uh, so that was really the controversial issue. Um, what happened was that the governor of New Jersey who at that time was a Democrat, went to the Republican administration in Washington and, and asked for permission to try to uh, fill the regiment. It was not just the 33rd, there were a couple of other regiments, to fill them with volunteers. And if they could do that, well, then they would be exempt from the draft. And how do you then get people to do what they don't want to do on their own? Well, you offer them money. And so what happened was that um, There was the federal bonus, there were the federal bounties, there was a small state bounty. But then what happens is that Newark and communities in New Jersey start paying their own bounties or bonuses. And there's a big difference between the way they're structured. The federal government, I guess probably having learned the hard way, paid those bonuses over the entire term of the enlistment. So you got a certain amount down in so much a month, obviously giving you the incentive to to serve out your term. In the, the municipal bounties were paid on paid on the spot or as soon as you enlisted, and that opened the incentive for bounty jumping. You know, uh, enlisting, collecting your three hundred dollars, and getting out of there as fast as you can. And in a time when um, you know there are no fingerprints, no means of identification, it's you know it's not that hard a thing to do. Um, what happens is that ultimately. 25% of the original 900 members who enlist in the 33rd desert before the regiment even leaves the city of Newark, much less come under the fire of Confederate guns. 
So they're they're not off to a, a dashing start. You've got no, and, hundred men. And then what makes it and and I think what makes it worse then for the men who stay is that, you know, we have this we have this image of um, the Civil War regiment marching off to uh, war with flags flying and bands playing. Well, that was the 33rd's experience, but there was another element added to that. They were guarded front, rear, and side by the 3rd Vermont, making sure that nobody else deserted on the way to the dock. So not, not an auspicious start. Let's take a short break here. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking today with John Zinn, author of The Mutinous Regiment, the 33rd New Jersey in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 